Paddock Pass podcast lockdown special coming at you from Barcelona, the Netherlands and somewhere in the Republic of Ireland. This is the second part of our review of 2015 in this recent series we've been doing of trips down memory lane. My name is Neil Morrison and uh, for the second part of uh, this particular edition I'm joined by the men who were there in the first Mr. David Emmett of motomatters.com. Hi David. Hello Neil. And Mr. Stephen English, World Superbike commentator extraordinaire. Hello there, Steve. Hi, guys. And Neil, I want to make it perfectly clear. I'm well within my two kilometer radius from my house, so I'm fully legal to record this podcast in the Republic. <laughs> Great to hear you're not doing any uh, naughtiness over there. Just for a change, Steve. Uh, well, if you were a listener to one of our recent shows, that was episode number 142. We were looking back at the 2015 season now. So rich and so dense was it in drama and madness that we've had to actually uh, split this into two shows. So the previous show that we had just recorded covered the first eight rounds of the year. And we actually left you at the end of the Dutch Grand Prix, which saw, uh, well, the uh, the beginnings of the deterioration of Marquez and Rossi's relationship uh, basically in the public eye for everyone to see. So we're just going to pick up basically from the Dutch Grand Prix and head on. The final 10 races of that year yeah, are some of the most uh, dramatic in memory. Dave, are you ready? Are you ready to uh, to go forth towards this uh, this part of the year, this part of history that uh, you so love? My, uh, my loins are firmly girded. <laughs> Jesus wept. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just thinking of all the really fun uh, Twitter interactions you're going to have after this, Dave. Oh yes, oh yes! It's going to be. It is going to be so much fun talking about um, uh, Misano. <laughs> okay, right. Well, let's uh, let's get back into it because after after the Dutch Grand Prix, the dramatic Dutch Grand Prix, we went to Germany for the final race in the first half of 2015, and uh, well. Really wasn't that much uh, to report on there. We had a Honda 1 2 with Marquez leading Pedroza home. Rossi, crucially, uh, scored three more points than Jorge Lorenzo by finishing third. Lorenzo was fourth. And that meant the halfway point of the championship, Valentino Rossi had a 13 point lead over his Yamaha teammate, Jorge Lorenzo. Ian only was 61 points back, and Marquez was facing a monumental uphill task of getting back into the championship fight. He was 65 points back of Rossi. So I think it's fair to say that we can call this a two-horse race from here. So after a, a three-week summer break in which we all uh, recharged our batteries, all of us, of course, inst- except Steve, who uh, insisted on attempting to fly out to uh, Laguna Seca for World Superbike duties, after uh, complaining of how uh, destroyed and mentally worn out he was in his first half year with uh, Motorcycle News, we uh, all arrived at Indianapolis for uh, the, uh, the resumption of the MotoGP series. And that was a pretty interesting race. David. It was a pretty good uh, race. It, it turned it quite a, into a, a decent battle between Mark Marquez and uh, uh, Jorge Lorenzo, um, which went all the way down to the line. Um, and Marquez just uh, just managed to uh, uh, just managed to take it. Um, uh, behind them, Valentino Rossi and uh, Danny Pedrosa slugged it out for third. Um, uh, Rossi. Knowing that you know Lorenzo was the front, knowing that he couldn't afford to lose too many points, put a fairly toughish move uh, uh, on the last lap to grab third from um, uh, uh, from Pedrosa. But uh, yeah, it was a um, it, it was it was a it was a pretty decent race. Yeah, absolutely. And we went from Indy 
uh, to the Czech Republic uh, less than a week later for the 11th round of the series. And that was uh, well, one of the weaker races, I think you could say, of the season. Uh, Lorenzo winning out ahead of Marquez and Rossi. Rossi looked pretty darn beat in the uh, press conference after that race uh, because Lorenzo had dominated basically from start to finish. And uh, Rossi had no answer whatsoever. And really, for the first time that year, Rossi wasn't uh, any number of points ahead of his rival. They both drew level at the top of the championship on 211 points. So two rounds that, in terms of 2015, weren't that interesting. But there was some stuff going on in the riders' market, Steve, which was of interest around this indie Brno time. Yeah, as you said, Neil, the championship was all about momentum and which way it was shifting. At that stage, it looked like the momentum was moving towards Lorenzo, Rossi's under pressure. But really, the big stories in the paddock at the time were all revolving around the rider market. And uh, you, you had different situations at play when we went into the summer break. Ducati had Ian One third in the championship. Davi was under pressure. And uh, then further down the field, you had just a, a huge number of riders that were facing uncertain futures. You had Cal Crutchlow at LCR Honda. It looked like LCR were going to run a single bike team because they'd basically ran out of money with a sponsor that had fallen out. And they they needed to find, as Lucio Cecanaldo said at the time, the most competitive rider possible so that they could make themselves attractive to sponsors and uh, different partners to the team. That was obviously going to be crutch though, but where did that leave Jack Miller? Miller, of course, was on a three-year Honda contract, so it was guaranteed that he was going to be on the Premier Class grid the following year. And what made this really interesting was suddenly someone was going to be able to get support from Honda. At the time, it looked like it was a toss-up between Aspar and Mark VDS. Aspar, at the time, were running the open Honda. Eugene Laverty and Nicky Hayden were on the bike. And with Nicky Hayden looking like he was going to move on from MotoGP at the end of the season, it looked like Miller and Laverty would make a good partnership for Aspar. They'd have support from Honda, but they'd need to raise money to be able to have the full crew for it. So that was the big sticking point for Aspar at that stage. Now, at this point as well, there was lots of other factors at play within the paddock. Bradley Smith was kicking off because he hadn't been signed to a long-term contract yet. He just won the Suzuka eight hours and Paul Espargaro was immediately given an extension to his Yamaha contract. Smith went to Indianapolis and in the pre-event press conference basically said, why haven't I been signed yet? And uh, Hervé Poncheral came out and said, well, we've agreed everything with Brad. We just haven't announced it. And it seemed that there was just a lot of tension then between the Tech Trois garage just in relation to the rider that at the time was sixth in the World Championship. So that was all playing off. You had, as I said, Miller and Crutchlow. You had Aspar wondering what bike to be running. You had even Danny Kent being linked with a move up to the Premier Class. Now that move at the time was being talked about to the Pramac Ducati team. So at Indianapolis, that was the big rumour going around the paddock. But even a week later, by the time we got to Brno, that had all changed. And suddenly it was Scott Redding that was looking like he was going to go to Pramac. And David, we were talking to Michael Bartolemi on the Saturday morning in Brno. And he said, you know what? I'm going to surprise people with who I hire for the, 25th, for the 2016 season. And uh, obviously for... Mark VDS, they did make a bit of a surprise for the following season. Uh, yes, it was a uh, surprise. They took um, Jack Miller. Um, uh, obviously, they were a rich enough team to be able to afford the money which um, 
they needed to be able to run the whole the, the full factory bike, and also they it meant that they got proper uh, proper support from HRC, and uh, uh, then of course Tito Rabat moved up as well. Uh, Tito Rabat was on his way to uh, his Moto Two World Championship uh, uh, that year, um, so it was uh, and it was. Tito had been a Mark VDS or a Mark van der Straaten protege for uh, for a number of years, so it was um, you know it was about time that he moved up as well. So uh, they lost Scott Redding, and obviously Scott Redding had come up with the uh, Mark VDS team, uh, been with the Mark VDS team for I think four or five years uh, uh, before coming back uh, or before leaving for Pramac. So um, uh, uh, Honda got their, well, well, Honda kept their rider in a team with the finances to run in. Yeah, and it was interesting then as well that Franco Morbidelli, of course, moved on to the Moto2 bike for them. And it was himself and Alex Marquez then on that bike. So it showed again that VDS and Bartolomei were always looking to be a little bit aggressive with who they were going to hire in the different classes. And obviously, Franco ended up being a pretty good hire for them. Marquez, of course, won a Moto2 championship as well. So they've really been able to pay off in spades with those decisions that were made in the summer of 2015. Yeah, and also, I mean, that was their whole reason for for racing was to go out and uh, and win. Basically, they really they were really focused on actually winning, uh, and that was why, in the end, their, their MotoGP contract sort of um, uh, or their MotoGP project failed because it was really Bartolomei's project. He wanted to do it. Mark van der Straaten, who owns the team, was never really all that keen on the on the idea. Um, and so when they, when the split came between Bartolomei and, uh, Mark van der Straaten later, it was no surprise that one of the first things that, uh, the, the new Mark VDS team was, was drop the MotoGP projects and just focus on Moto2. Cause, you know, they just want to win titles and win races. Okay, so what uh, Bruno and the uh, Czech Republic Grand Prix lacked in uh, action, well, that was going to be compensated and then some in the races that followed because we went to the Silverstone for the British Grand Prix and, uh, well, that was the uh, the 12th round of the series with the two movie star Yamahas joined at the top of the championship and, uh, well, going off free practice, going off qualifying, it looked as though we were going to have a Lorenzo Marquez dust up with Rossi really struggling to get anywhere near the front two. Both Lorenzo and Marquez obviously had contested the uh, the race win at Silverstone in both 13 and 14. Qualifying was magnificent. Both of them trading blows, pole position times before Marquez eventually broke the outright circuit record to gain pole position. But then the weather changed and uh, what had been a beautiful blue skies and dry conditions were replaced by, uh, well... Uh, things that would become quite commonplace in the uh, years that followed at Silverstone. Pretty gloomy skies, a drenched circuit, and uh, that threw the cat among the pigeons, David. It uh, it really did. It was it was um, a, a proper surprising race. On a on a side note, um, uh, the one of the first races that I took my parents to was uh, Silverstone one year, and it was. It just rained and the wind blew vertically for about, or horizontally for about, um, 
uh, uh, you know, for, for about six hours. And so in the years afterwards, I said, do you want to come to a race? And they said, oh, no, it's all right. We'll, uh, we'll give it a miss. So, um, uh, but it was, it was, it was a, it was a really good race. Um, it was, it was a fascinating race as well. Uh, Rossi rode superbly in the wet. Um, uh, as he is able to, Marquez uh, was trying to keep up with him, but uh, uh, ended up uh, ended up crashing out. And then uh, we saw Danilo Petrucci get his first podium, which was just absolutely, uh, yeah, absolutely superb. It was one of those really memorable moments for me. Yeah, and for me, this was a really memorable one because obviously, for all of us working for British publications or British websites, the British Grand Prix is always a big day. It's always an important one. And for me that year, Danny Kent was in position to really put himself into you know, title clinching positions at an early stage of the season. And whenever it started to rain in the morning, you're there thinking like, oh, this is going to be a bit risky for, for Danny. And he managed to go out, dominate the Moto3 race, pick up a home win. And you just looked at it and thought, all right, Kent's got this championship in the bag. Now we can move on and really focus on, you know, the the Rossi and Lorenzo fight for the championship. And then obviously in the race, you look at what Rossi did. He had said afterwards that he just didn't have the pace to beat Lorenzo in a straight up fight in the dry anymore. Lorenzo just had that edge. But this was a day where that edge didn't matter. He was able just to maximize everything around him. And this was the 112th win of Rossi's career. And I really couldn't find one at the time that was a more important win than this one because it gave him the momentum again in, in his search for that 10th World Championship. He brought that momentum to Mizano as well. He extended his championship lead to 23 points over those two rounds and it really looked like we were set for Rossi to be able to win the championship. He, he had that momentum again. Yeah, and again, what was interesting was the fact that uh, Lorenzo uh, had uh, helmet problems for the second race uh, in the season. At the start of the year, he changed to uh, HJC, and at the start of the year at Qatar, he said the helmet lining was falling down in front of his uh, in front of his eyes while he was trying to ride. And then um, at uh, at Silverstone in the rain, he said he was having uh, fogging problems. And I seem to recall uh, Ben Spees uh, having uh, helmet fogging problems previously as well uh, so it was um, uh, it was a difficult it was it was a difficult time there were there were um, we were used to some um, uh, some strange excuses from uh, from Jorge Lorenzo from time to time my favorite being uh, the time that he launched himself uh, uh, uh at the start of the Texas Grand Prix, because he had a, a massive bug on his uh, on his visor, he said. Um, but uh, this was this. It just seemed so. We didn't know whether to take this whole sort of like helmet fogging thing seriously, but it really seems to uh, have been an issue for him. Yeah, that was the the mosquito excuse. Whenever there was really an ant that was causing the problem for Lorenzo <laughs> at that stage, and I remember I was up at Turn One shooting that day, and. Uh, I was standing beside Randy Depunier, I think it was, and Lorenzo just shot off and he's, you know, 200 yards in front of everyone. And uh, Depunier just turned around and just laughed hysterically <laughs> to everyone around them about it. Yeah, that, of course, was uh, a race famous, uh, aside from the, uh, the, great, the great fight at the front between Marquez and Rossi and then uh, Petrucci's uh, subsequent podium. It was, of course, the race that Jack Miller took uh, Kyle Crutchlow off uh, in opening laps when both the two LCR Hondas were contesting the lead in the rain in Britain. And both of those guys, I think, uh, probably had a pretty good chance of winning the race. But uh, Miller, being in his rookie season, just trying to do a bit too much 
too soon. Much to uh, team manager Lucio Cecchinello's chagrin. Yeah, and it's also worth saying that at this stage of the season, Miller looked like a fully-fledged MotoGP rider. He was fitter, he was stronger, he was getting more and more consistent. And it just took him half a season to really find his feet 100%. By the time we left episode 142, he had just taken out half the field into the chicane in Assen. And, and that really did become one of those isolated incidents as we moved forward for the next couple of years. And it showed that you could try and make the jump like what Miller had done and be able to really adapt to a MotoGP bike quite quickly. Yeah, so we went from Silverstone to Misano, and Misano, what, what drama we saw there. What, uh, what a topsy-turvy up and down uh, draining, emotionally draining encounter that was. Uh, Rossi riding at home, uh, trying to protect the championship lead, but going to Jorge Lorenzo's, well, one of his favorite tracks. Rossi, of course, won here in 2014, but through qualifying and free practice, Lorenzo was showing tremendous, tremendous form, tremendous potential, clocking up another pole position ahead of Marquez and Rossi in an all-star front row for this race. It was well, I think before the before the race started, it was set to be another Lorenzo Marquez brawl, but then the weather intervened again. So normally most flag-to-flag encounters we see contain just one pit stop, but this contained pretty much two pit stops for the majority of riders, David. It was uh, pretty crazy trying to uh, trying to keep up with it all because we obviously had Lorenzo, Marquez and Rossi, who were the, the guys leading the race at the start. Uh, they pitted, but then at the same time we had guy like Bradley Smith, who never pitted at all. Uh, we also had Scott Redding uh, making a, a kind of mercurial turn to the uh, return to the top of the standings after uh, crashing out in the early laps. Uh, I mean, this was just uh, impossible to, to keep up with. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, the um, uh, if you go to the MotoGP.com website, um, uh, they have they publish PDF of, of uh, all the results, which includes you know everything that happens, uh, or um, every time someone enters the pits, or every time someone crashes. And normally, it's like one page. Sometimes it might be two pages. This one with all the pit stops is uh, four pages, nearly four. Uh, it's it's just because everyone goes uh, goes in. What happened? It started off dry, so everyone went. Out on the went out on slicks, and it started to rain. And uh, riders were looking uh, at each other, trying to judge when was the best time to come in uh, for, uh, for 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 wets. And for some riders, it was uh, well. For one rider, for Bradley Smith, it was just like, um, oh well, give it one more lap. I'll give it one more lap, and then all of a sudden, it was too late really for him to try to to even come in. And that ended up paying off uh, within uh, scoring a podium. And there was uh, Bradley or. Uh, sorry, Scott Redding as well. Scott Redding crashed, came in early, changed on to uh, uh, wets. Um, uh, didn't like the feeling of the wets, thought, oh, well, you know, I've lost the race anyway, so I'll just come back in and stick slicks on and see where I end up. And um, so he was one of, the, one of the first people to change back to slicks. And he earned a podium because of that. But it was just, there was so much drama everywhere. Yeah, fantastic companion piece to uh, these podcasts that we're doing, I feel, is uh, Dorna's documentary that they released at the end of 2015. Jorge Lorenzo Guerrero is the name of it. Some fantastic behind-the-scenes shots and exchanges between some of the riders that, uh, well, we obviously didn't see at the time. And uh, one of those that is really telling is uh, Rossi coming out the back of his garage at Misano, and some of his fans are there and they start cheering and they go up to him and they say, that's it. Lorenzo crashed, that's the championship for you. And rather than appearing upbeat, instead, Rossi, 
is looking pretty drained, pretty downcast at only managing to score a fifth place because that was a, a race that probably he should have won in the conditions. It was just uh, the timing of the pit stop that got away from him. Yeah, and uh, to an extent, he was sort of, you know, almost unlucky with the weather in, in that um, he, if anything, he was looking too much at Lorenzo and not uh, and not thinking enough about sort of, you know, what he was going to do uh, in terms of uh, swapping tyres. Uh, certainly um, what we saw here, I think, was a, a typical Marquez masterclass in that he comes out when other people are not really comfortable enough going out on slicks on a, on a really still sketchy track. And he's just, you know so much faster than everyone else in those conditions, in those sort of, you know, uh, low grip conditions where the bike is sliding around and moving around. Uh, we've seen that before, most famously in Argentina, where um, he was uh, basically three seconds a lap faster than everyone else, but um, at the same time trying to knock everyone off. Um, it's it, 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 it's typically um, a d- typical Marquez uh, um, uh, conditions, but yeah, I think if uh, I think uh, you do wonder if if Lorenzo or if Rossi looked back at this and um, uh, looked back at the race and thought, you know, what would have happened if he'd have uh, come in if, if it had pitted earlier, if it had pitted before Lorenzo, because Lorenzo famously hates these these half and half conditions, and so you can uh, force. I mean. It, in the end, it was Scott Redding who forced Laura, uh, uh, Jorge Lorenzo into a mistake. But you you feel that uh, perhaps Rossi could have forced Lorenzo into a mistake if he had come in earlier and switched to slicks uh, uh, because Rossi would have been better at that and he might have scored more points. Yeah, and I remember we were all obviously sitting in the press room together for this and all of us were saying the Yamahas are going too long. They're just focusing on each other when they need to just take it race by race at this stage because at the end of the day you're just moving into the final third of a season and fair enough Marquez is out of contention for the championship and it is a battle just between you and your teammate but you need to make sure that on a day like this you really do take advantage of it and David you mentioned it there about how fast Lorenzo was in consistent conditions and that would come to the fore again at another wet race in Japan where when the conditions were either fully wet or fully dry he was fantastic. But in that mix zone between the two, just like in Mizano, it was a big challenge for him. Now don't get too far ahead of yourself, Steve, because before we went to Mategi, we had the Grand Prix at Aragon. Only five races left, 23 points between Rossi and Lorenzo at this point. And the championship still is in Lorenzo's hands. If he wins the final five races, he will be world champion at the end of it. Now, what really impressed me about this weekend was Lorenzo had suffered that massive massive disappointment of crashing out of the race at Misano. we then get to Aragon and there's basically no sign whatsoever of uh, of Lorenzo showing any mental blocks any loss of confidence he goes out and breaks the lap record in FP1 dominates proceedings through uh, pretty much all of free practice and uh, well again I'm saying this again for the third race in a row but it looks as though it's going to be a Marquez Lorenzo duel at the front of this race and a real chance for Jorge to claw big points back because Rossi we know never really got on so well with Aragon and this was Lorenzo's chance David yeah absolutely absolutely also because this second half of the season there were more more Lorenzo tracks 
than there were uh, Rossi tracks, if you like. There's um, uh, obviously Aragon was a big Lorenzo track. Valencia was a uh, was a Lorenzo track. Mategi um, to a certain extent was more of a uh, uh, um, more of a Lorenzo track. Um, Sepang maybe as well a, a little bit, but uh, even though uh, Rossi had historically been quite strong in Sepang, but really it was. Um, the, the, the like I said, and like we keep saying, it was about momentum. It was like it, it was a real pendulum. The the normally the once the momentum starts to swing in a particular direction, it keeps going that way. But um, uh, it was absolutely all over the place that time. And Lorenzo just completely, uh, he just completely dominated, and to an extent that um, uh, he got away with Mark Marquez and Mark. Uh, uh, Mark Marquez uh, ended up crashing out, losing the front under braking, which was uh, really still where the weakness of the Honda was uh, uh, during that. The, the strength of the bike was the braking, um, but you would push so hard the, to, to try to uh, to try and make it work um, that uh, you know to try to exploit that, to try to take advantage of it. That. Um, uh, that it was easy to crash out. The weakness of the Honda at the time was was acceleration grip. It didn't really have a lot of drive grip, um, which we would come to see later on. But um, uh, it was th- this. I think was a, was a lesson for Marquez for uh, in not crashing. But um, it was just an absolute masterful race for um, masterful uh, race for Lorenzo, and perhaps Marquez crashing out um, uh, ended up helping Rossi. Yeah, and it was one of those ones as well, David, where at this stage of the year, Marquez had already said that he didn't care about the championship. He was only thinking about wins. That was as early as Silverstone, I think, was the first time he really said it. And this was one of those examples where he clearly just went absolutely as fast as he could to try and battle with Lorenzo because Lorenzo that weekend was fantastic. Over a single lap, Marquez got the better of him in qualifying, but Lorenzo's pace and his consistency and everything about him that weekend was just fantastic. And it showed what he could do on those great days where he was at his best, he was untouchable. And Rossi knew that Lorenzo was untouchable on days like that. And David became really important then what happened behind Jorge because suddenly you've got a big scrap between Rossi and Pedroza. Danny, of course, had been recovering from his arm pump surgery earlier in the year and it had been a real up and down season for him, mostly down. But Aragon was one of those highlights. It was a real battle between himself and Rossi. And those four points that Rossi lost would end up being, again, absolutely crucial because a championship that goes down to the last race of the season all comes down to who came out on top in those small battles. And those four points would have made the world a difference to Rossi. Yeah, and uh, again, Pedrosa, as you were saying, like it was a fantastic battle between uh, uh, Pedrosa and Rossi. And Pedrosa was just incredibly aggressive. We actually saw some uh, very, uh, you know, uh, aggressive battles between Pedrosa and Rossi. Pedrosa obviously had been criticised for a lot of his career for for not being an aggressive racer, but uh, there was none of that in 2015. As soon as as soon as Pedrosa was fit again, he was just really um, um, he was intent on making a point to to say, you know, look, I've had all these uh, uh, all of these difficulties. These these things have been holding me up, and when I'm uh, when I'm capable of racing, then by God, I'm going to race. Yeah, I remember. Looking back at um, some of Lorenzo's um, lap-by-lap analysis through free practice, and one of the things that was really notable about that weekend in Aragon was he was coming out of pit lane on new tires, full tank of fuel, and you would see 
slow first split, but on his outlap would then post the fastest sectors of the session on the second, third, fourth sectors of his outlap. And that was happening throughout free practice. And basically Lorenzo saw his pace in FP1, thought, okay, I'm quick. Now let's devise a strategy. And as he had done all year, his strategy was just go like hell from the blocks. And he basically, he did lure Marquez in. It was like a, a kind of Venus flytrap, lured his unsuspecting subject, subject in there. And uh, well, Mark, uh, Mark fell right into the trap trying to do too much too soon. And uh, well, he got away from him. That decided the race. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of looking at it as well, Neil, because it's it's easy for people to forget just how good Lorenzo was when we look back at the last few years, just because obviously, especially what happened last year with Honda, but at his best, he was unbeatable. He was the only rider that could really consistently take it to Marquez. He was the only rider that could really do the things that he could do. And uh, Aragon was one of those ones where, once again, as you said, he just came in and knew instinctively, this is one of those weekends where no one's going to beat me. And like you said, he just lulled Marquez into having to push that hard and no one could live with Lorenzo that weekend. So therefore, by the time Marquez had crashed out, there was already a buffer to the other riders behind them. And this was the weekend really where for Rossi, it became absolutely imperative from this point on to know that you've got to make sure that the momentum starts to shift back your way. Because even though it was only one weekend, it was every single lap of that weekend where Lorenzo was faster. Yeah, and it's the uh, the mental strength of Lorenzo in this year that really shone through, I think, at, uh, at Aragon, because he came back from Mizano, obviously, which had been such a massive disappointment. And to put in, um, well, to stamp his authority over the weekend in such, such style, I think, uh, spoke volumes of where Jorge's head uh, was at in 2015. He was operating absolutely at the peak of his career. Yeah, and I think just by you mentioning it there as well, Neil, about where you're at in your head, the mental strength you need to be able to win a world championship. It was at this point where in the Moto3 World Championship, it was all falling apart for Danny Kent. He had a big crash on the last lap, didn't score any points. Oliveira won the race. This was Oliveira's second win. But Oliveira would finish this season with six podiums in a row and four wins and just constantly wrapping up that pressure, ramping up that pressure on Danny Kent. And I remember at the time, all of us sort of thought, ah, it's only, it's one, one instant. Kent's still got a massive lead in the championship. Everything's going to be fine because Oliveira, after he won in Mijalo, I think he scored 11 or 12 points in the next four rounds. He was absolutely nowhere. But then in those final six rounds, he showed that incredible mental strength that's needed to be able to consistently win Grand Prix. And it was really, even though Danny Kent won the championship, it was Oliveira that was the one that was marked as, you know what, he's the one that could be the special rider in this class. Yeah, I mean, uh, speaking to Peter Bob about it um, afterwards, a long time afterwards, he did say like that you could really see the, the team were really starting to get worried about uh, about uh, Danny Kent at the time because they could see that the pressure was starting to, it had it come so close uh, and he had just needed sort of something to push him over the edge to actually win the uh, win the title. Uh, but uh, the nerves were were really starting to get to him, especially as a pang um, uh, later on. That really, uh, uh, he really started to crumble under the pressure a little bit and he found it very, uh, very difficult. And, in the end, he, you know, it, it took him until the last race to, to to get it over the line. But it was it was a real struggle. So we've been talking about Lorenzo operating at his peak after Aragon. It seemed that he'd finally got all that bad luck behind him, got some momentum in his sails, and then prior to the three flyaways, 
he finds himself rushing to hospital after a minibike accident when he's been mucking around with some friends at a barbecue. I think uh, Alicia Spargo, a few other of the uh, the Spanish riders up in Andorra were having a race. And Lorenzo thinks he's uh, he's broken his left shoulder and he turns up to Mitegi, Steve. I wasn't there that year. I don't think David was either, but you were. Lorenzo arrives with uh, his left shoulder in a sling and it seems as though, well, his participation in the event is actually in some doubt. Yeah, and I remember looking at him thinking, actually... I remember seeing you walk back into the paddock on the Friday night in Hassan that year with your arm in a sling. And you're kind of, you, you want to be able to say, this is going to be a big deal. This is a massive story. This is potentially the end of your championship. But in the back of your head, you're always thinking, you know what? It's Jorge Lorenzo. And he's got that mental strength to get through things like this. Because at that stage, all Lorenzo, he was the Spartan. He was the the guy that was trained from a child to be able to ward off anything. He was the absolute battler. And, you know, he had that warrior mentality. He hadn't, you know, really been damaged yet, like what we saw over the the following years. Obviously, 2014, the toll of what happened in 2013 was taken in in 2014 for Lorenzo, but he bounced back so well that even whenever he turned up at Motegi, you still thought, you know what? Let's wait and see what he can do here. You weren't willing to just immediately write him off, especially because, like Mark Mark has it said after the Aragon round, Lorenzo is without doubt the fastest man in MotoGP right now. Marquez was talking in terms of what Lorenzo was able to do at Silverstone and Misano and Aragon, and even though Rossi had amassed more points over those three races, it was still what Lorenzo could do on the track that was going to define the championship. Yeah, Marquez arriving to Japan as well with uh, a training injury. He had uh, broken a bone in his left hand for the second time in the 2015 season. Uh, Lorenzo looked pretty good in free practice. It was a real dogfight between the movie star Yamaha's in qualifying. Lorenzo just pipping Rossi to pole position. It looked like it was going to be another movie star Yamaha showdown that uh, Sunday. But once again, the weather intervened, David, and uh, things didn't quite work out as Jorge had planned. No, exactly. And it was, um, uh, again, it wasn't, at least it was properly wet. Um, so the grip was relatively consistent. Uh, but Lorenzo, the, the, the track starts to dry out a little bit and Lorenzo destroyed his front tire. Um, uh, ended up just losing touch. Well, uh, I mean, no one was going to touch Pedrosa at that, uh, uh, at that race, but, um, uh, the, the Lorenzo was had a very strong first half of the race but um, uh, ended up losing out Rossi at Pedrosa came past uh, uh, Rossi came past um, and um, try as Rossi might he couldn't catch Pedrosa but um, uh, he ended up finishing ahead of uh, of Lorenzo and those, th- those turned out to be really really important points but they really took it out of him he looked completely destroyed um, uh, getting off the bike in, in part for mate. Yeah, and I remember afterwards Rossi said that it was probably one of the most draining Grand Prix of his life. Just the stress of the championship as much as anything else was really weighing on him because like you said, David, Lorenzo takes off like a scalded cat at the start. Pedroza's got the pace then as well whenever the track started to change and Rossi just looked at it like, well, Lorenzo's going to win this race. I'm going to finish second. I'm going to give up nine points. The championship's just starting to fall away from him and this is on a weekend where Lorenzo turned up in a sling so 
the pressure on Rossi at this stage was absolutely immense. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, for me, one of the images I think of the 2015 season uh, was uh, Rossi in Park Ferme because he did look, he looked gaunt, he looked drawn, he looked thin, he looked pale. Um, he looked, he looked like, I mean, the riders all stuck about getting there 110%. Uh, uh, which, as we all know, is mathematically impossible. But I think this is uh, this came as close. It's as close as I've seen a rider ever give a hundred percent, give absolutely everything, uh, and finish the race. And I do wonder um, how much the exhaustion of this race played into what would happen over the next few races. Yeah, for me, this was one, the only time that I can really compare to seeing riders come off a bike like this is during the Suzuka eight hours where, you know, the temperatures through the roof, the humidity's through the roof, the demands on the rider are so high physically, but this was the mental side of it for Rossi. This is, it reminded me of seeing Casey Stoner get off the bike in 2008, 2000, especially 2009, uh, at the height of his lactic acid um, uh, times where he was, you know, he was puking in his helmet and he was, uh, he would get off the bike in Park Ferme, having got on the podium and just almost collapse. And Rossi, because Rossi rode into Park Ferme and he just sat on his bike for about two minutes just to recover himself before he got, uh, got off normally. When you get on a podium, you leap off your bike and, and, and congratulate everyone. That was not happening. Yeah, and this was obviously a day where Rossi had finished in front of Lorenzo. I think it was three or four seconds between them at the flag. But in the press conference, it was Lorenzo that was walking in cock of the walk. And he came into the press conference and he said, you know what? I'm faster than everyone else right now. I've got the speed circumstances have just played against me in recent rounds. The rain in Silverstone, the rain in Mizano, the conditions changing here. I'm the fastest and I'm going to prove it. And Rossi sat there and then he he took a moment to collect himself. And then he said, you know what? It's disrespectful to blame fates at a time like this. I could also find excuses for what's happened through the course of this year. And you could really see the two riders starting now on the flyaways to see that pressure build up for both of them. And it was interesting then over the course of the next couple of rounds to really see how both of them were going to deal with that. And uh, while the Japanese Grand Prix uh, in 2015 was also notable for uh, several other things, Johan Zarco wrapped up his uh, his first Moto2 World Championship, celebrated with uh, typical somersault off the trackside barriers. It was the, the race in which uh, Nicky Hayden finally announced that he was leaving MotoGP after uh, stepping up into the Premier Class in 2003, he was off to World Superbike with 10 Caddy Honda. And this race also spelled the end of uh, Alex DeAngelis' career in the MotoGP class. He had a pretty terrifying crash in FP4 where he hit trackside uh, guardrail and uh, had pretty serious uh, cranial issues. Some cranial bleeding was reported after the race, but DeAngelis miraculously made a full recovery and uh, was pretty much back up on his feet just a matter of weeks after this weekend. A weekend that was also notable for one of Steve English's favorite rental car stories. Well, it's more than just a rental car story this time. Obviously, I'm, I'm sure we'll get to it later on at Sepang. Sepang had a rental car story as well for me. But this was more just about my own level of sheer incompetence and lack of preparation. And the old adage is failure to prepare, prepare to fail. And I'll tell you what, I failed big time in Japan 2015. I would lived in Tokyo at one stage whenever I was an engineer and I was over and back to Japan lots. So I knew my way around 
Tokyo and I, I understood Japanese culture and I knew what to expect going to Japan because obviously the first time that you go to Japan, it really is, like Ian Rush would say, a whole other country. And I remember in 2014, a couple of riders went there for the first time and they, I was talking to them afterwards whenever we were down in, I think it was Sepang and Phillip Island. And they were saying, oh God, I'll tell you what, I couldn't eat anything. I was just going to McDonald's every day and you know different things like that. So Japan, it's a tough one to go to. But I was prepared for all of that. I knew what to expect. The only thing I didn't know what to expect, though, was that you needed to have an international driver permit to be able to rent a car. So I've got my hotel booked. I got my car booked. I've got everything sorted. And I, I land into Tokyo. I go and I, I had to do a photo shoot with Eugene Laverty in the middle of Shibuya, Shibuya whatever way you pronounce it, the big crossing in the middle of, of Tokyo. So we go in, we do the photo shoot. We have a day in Tokyo. It's two Irishmen completely lost around Tokyo. And we looked just like you would expect for two paddies in the middle of Japan. But after this, go back to the airport and say to Nord, right? Sure, I'll see you in the morning. Both of us had to pick up our cars, head up to Motegi, everything's grand. So I arrive into the airport and I see John Laverty. And I say to Jay Lav, all right, John, how are you getting on? And he says, oh, not so good. Do you, do you have a rental car sorted, Steve? And I said, yeah, I do, mate, yeah. And he says, do you have an international driver permit? And I said fuck do I need that for? Like, I've got my driver's license. That's, that's Surely that's enough. I've never needed to use the international permit anywhere else. You always heard those horror stories about it for America and things like that. Never needed. Everything's grand. So I go up to the top of the queue anyway and uh, you know, John's looking across and he sees me getting a little bit more and more annoyed. And I look across to him and he's starting to giggle away to himself because he knows exactly what's happening where I'm being refused my rental car. So I go back to John afterwards and I said, yeah, yeah, you were right, John. I wasn't able to rent my car. Does Eugene have an international driver's permit? So we're waiting for Norge to arrive. Sure enough, he arrives. All right, Norge, how are you? Do you you have an international driver's permit? Sure enough, Eugene has an international driver's permit. So, you know, I say like, Grant, I'll just jump in with you lads. Perfect. Norge goes up to get his rental car, gives his international driver's permit. And then he's also looking really angry and confused. And we say, well, what, what's going on? Turns out that his international driver's permit was an international driver's permit. The only problem was it was the wrong international convention on it. So he couldn't rent a car either. So I'm looking around and I've got my, my bag for three weeks of the flyaways. You've got Eugene's kit bag. John's got his big bag with him. Everything's there. And we're there like, how the fuck are we going to get to Motegi? Because it, it's a decent spin up to Motegi. And then we see Alan Smith, Bradley Smith's dad, walking through the airport. And we say to him, Al, you've been to Japan before. Do you have an international driver's permit? And he says, of course I do. (laughs) Who who the fuck would come to Japan without one? And then Norge says, is it the right one? And Alan's there like, I didn't know there was a wrong one. So Alan goes up, he gets his rental car. And sure enough, he has the right permit. He has everything sorted. He gets his car. And we, we ask him, can we jump in with you just to, to get up to the track? So sure enough, Alan says, yeah, that's fine. No worries at all. The only problem with it was this thing was smaller than a clown car. And we've got like four suitcases, five suitcases and four people to get into the car. So we're all cramped right up trying to get all the way up to Motegi. It's, I don't know, two and a half hour drive. And uh, we eventually get up to Motegi. The guys leave me to, to my hotel. And then I, I have to think about it. Actually, how am I going to get to the hotel 
you know, each, or how am I going to get from the hotel to the track each day? Because it never really occurred to me like taxis, they'd be ludicrously expensive. I'll, I'll end up losing my job because the taxi bill will be so expensive. I'll get no wages or something like that. So I'm thinking, how am I going get to get to the get to the track? And then I bumped into Matt Burt and I said, all right, Matt, um, any chance of a lift each day? And Matt said, yeah, that's no, no trouble. Jump in with us. So it was like Nick Harris and Amy Dargan and uh, Steve Day and myself. And uh, oh, it wasn't Steve, obviously he was still in the World Superbike. So it was just the three of us, sorry, the four of us in the car. So we go in and out every day. The only problem with it was they were working on a TV schedule rather than a journalist schedule. So, you know, they wanted to get back to the hotel as early as possible, whereas I wanted to be able to work as late as possible. So it ended up where you're leaving the track much earlier than you want each day, drive an hour up the road, get your work done, get picked up at the next morning, in and out, in and out, in and out. And it was just like the most stressful weekend I've ever had. So by the time Rossi looked incredibly drained after the race, I, w- I-, I was wrecked and I hadn't even started writing my four spreads at that stage. If you were playing the Steve English International Driver's Permit drinking game, I'm pretty <laughs> safe to assume that you're probably face down in your own vomit round about now. But uh, yeah, cheers to that, Steve. It was uh, always interesting hearing about your uh, your uh, your trips to the Orient. They're usually not without uh, their fair share of drama, <laughs> just like uh, just like we saw on the track that weekend. So, well, what preceded this uh, was interesting, but let's say... Phillip Island and then Sepang, well, two of the most dramatic races I think we'll ever likely see. First of all, Phillip Island, 18 points between Rossi and Lorenzo. Rossi handed another reprieve by the rain in Japan, but going to Phillip Island, one of his favorite tracks from old, it was really tough to know what was going to happen because we had drama pretty much right from the get-go, David, and a qualifying session pretty much for the ages. Yeah, the whole weekend was for the for, for the ages. It was just there was you know it just never seemed to stop really. Um, the race, I mean, when you talk about people's favorite races, this one always always comes up because it was it was just an all out uh, sort of slugfest and then you say it's Valentino Rossi's uh, favourite circuit and a track he goes well at the trouble is it's everybody's favourite circuit it's, it's somewhere where uh, everywhere uh, goes well we saw uh, Andrea you know the, the well the uh, most famous motorcycling seagull um, uh, 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 w- we were we were introduced to the uh, uh, most famous uh, seagull of the uh, motorcycling world when um, uh, Gavin, as he was later christened, uh, christened uh, ended up flying in front of Andrea Iannone as Iannone led on the second lap uh, down into uh, down into MG off of uh, off of Lukey Heights. Um, I think um, uh, motorcycle racer headbutts seagull was. Um, uh, front page news on just about every uh, every newspaper uh, you can imagine, uh, but the race it was just a, it was just an absolute sort of slugfest almost all the way to uh, to the line. It looked like Lorenzo had the race, but then um, uh, Marquez clawed him back, and Ian only Rossi uh, were all coming back. It was it was it's just a fantastic race. Yeah, I remember talking to Dylan Gray after the race, and we were talking about Seagull. And uh, Dylan said, I'll tell you what, I hope that's the same seagull that robbed my chips then in uh, cows the other night. <laughs> so in terms of the race, guys, I mean, we had four guys up at the front slugging it out. It was uh, Marquez, Lorenzo, Ianoni, Rossi. It was uh, pretty much action-packed from the very start. Um, 
did, although Marquez won the race, he wasn't really uh, up at the front uh, attempting to pull away. Did you guys get a sense watching that race that something strange was going on? No, nothing strange was going on in that race. That was Marquez at his best. This was his 50th Grand Prix win and this was as good a win as he had ever had. He had come on that last lap. He had to pass Iannone. He had to pass Lorenzo. He had struggled with tyre temperature at times through the course of the weekend and it was too high. So that's why he was kind of maybe not showing his full cards until the end of the race. But he had to manage the race so well and he still had to make sure that he was able to to get through and win the race. You know, it was it was so amazing that you could probably ask the question, was it scripted? But absolutely nobody in Phillip Island was asking that question. And by nobody, I mean Valentino Rossi as well. After the race, Rossi said this was a great race from the beginning to the end. It was a special race. It was a very hard rhythm all the way through proceedings. There was a lot of overtaking, a lot of different riders. It was an old school Phillip Island battle. And he said that he had some great battles and this was the best race of the year. Yeah, it is... Same for me. I mean, it was it was completely obvious that um, uh, this was uh, it was you know just a straightforward battle. Uh, Marquez, as you were saying earlier, Steve, Marquez was already at the point where he all he wanted to do was every, win every single race possible uh, for the rest of the, uh, whenever possible, and he was just sort of sitting back, holding back. Uh, as he said, his tire, front tire was overheating. That had been happening. It. It's happened a lot more now um, uh, with the missions, with the switch to missions. The Michelin front is a little bit more uh, susceptible to it, but um, it had happened a couple of times before. I think Bradley Smith at Bruno, I seem to recall, had had a, uh, a similar issue where the front tire would overheat a little bit, so he'd have to back off a little bit, uh, uh, brake a little bit more gently to to let the the, the tire cool down. Um, Marquez waited, waited till the end and and you know went for it, and for me. We had the weird uh, the accusations later, but for me, if anyone robbed Valentino Rossi at, um, uh, uh, if anyone interfered in the championship, it would have been uh, Andrea Iannone who beat uh, Valentino Rossi. We had seen Iannone, Steve, get Mugello, Le Mans earlier in the year, really showing that he was uh, capable of uh, living in uh, a factory MotoGP team. Uh, he was pretty much outperforming De Vizioso for most of the year. Uh, outside the fabulous front three of Lorenzo, Rossi and Marquez in 2015. Ian only was arguably the fourth standout rider uh, in the in the campaign. But this this was him riding like we had never seen before, arguably never seen since because, uh, you know, we knew at the time Ducati still had pretty comprehensive turning issues. Look in the years since and Ducati's never gone well at Phillip Island. But Ian only here was holding his own and using the top speed advantage of the Duke to, uh, to quite incredible uh, effect. Yeah, and that season was a year where obviously Ian One had come from the Pramac bike onto the GP15. And right from the start of, of pre-season testing, whenever he was asked about the feeling that he had with the new bike, whether it was compared to the GP13, 14, 14.2, 15, he was always able to say, you know, this bike's great because it does things that the old bike couldn't do. He had no frame of reference to be able to say a Yamaha does this, a Honda does that, the Ducati does this, whereas Davi did. And for the first five races of the year, Davi was really strong. You know, we talked about him in Qatar in the opening rounds of the year in episode 142. But from Le Mans onwards, Davi just really disappointed. He he fell off the pace. He was struggling with grip. He couldn't find solutions. But more than anything... 
he just couldn't find answers compared to Ian One. Ian One had, you wouldn't call it the naivety, but he just had that lack of experience of other bikes. And he was able to maximise what he had underneath him. And Phillip Island was, as you said, Neil, that real crowning moment for it. Because even after what happened with Gavin the Seagull, he was still able to come back and do what he did. And it was, it was a, a really impressive ride from him. It showed everything that Ian One could be. And if you think back to his 125 and his Moto2 days, he was able to win Grand Prix by 12, 13 seconds. Like Ian One's talent is never in doubt. And that's where it's really hard now to look at what's happened to him. Because in 2015, he had really put aside, you know, the crazy Joe moniker and he, he looked like he was ready to be the next superstar of MotoGP. And maybe the change to Michelin's, maybe changes within his own life took a big effect on him. But by the time we left Phillip Island, you looked at him and you thought, you know what? He's a man that can win a world championship. And Phillip Island showed just how smart he could be on the track. It showed that he wasn't afraid of going toe-to-toe with anyone and that he, he really did have the answers for them whenever it came down to a battle. It was a great ride by him. Yeah, talking about uh, new superstars coming through, Maverick Vinales, of course, finished this race sixth, just six seconds behind the race winner uh, for a rider uh, on a returning uh, mark. Sorry, riding for a returning mark uh, in his rookie season. That really was something special and definitely, I think, showed to all of us that Vinales was going to be a bit of a force in uh, future years. It was, of course, uh, sometime after the race, after the official press conference, that Valentino Rossi, in his uh, Italian debrief, was uh, asked by uh, Paolo Scalera, veteran Italian journalist, about uh, what he thought of Marquez's race. And it was then that Rossi kind of hinted that, uh, well, he didn't quite believe what Marquez had said about his overheating front tyre. Whenever that was put to him, Rossi just laughed and said, oh yeah, of course. And of course that was uh, going to blow up in the uh, the days that come. Anneth Nelson, uh, Anneth Nelson, Philip Island, guys? Uh, yeah, just one thing. Um, uh I think to me the craziest thing about the whole theory of uh, you know Mark Marquez wanting to help uh, Jorge Lorenzo win um, and then uh, uh, by win the championship and doing it by winning at uh, Phillip Island um, is well illogical and bonkers really because it it makes it makes no sense if Marquez really wanted Lorenzo were to win what he would have done is sat at, uh, sat behind Lorenzo and make sure that he got five points but he didn't he took five points five extra points off him um uh which could have made a big, a big difference this was it was completely obvious that Marquez was only interested in in winning a race so um yeah it all went um, it all went there, there are rumors that uh People sort of around Valentino Rossi were uh, sort of dripping poison in his ear, um, uh, saying, "Have you noticed this? And have you noticed that you not see Marquez do this?" Um, uh, and that, that I think is, yeah, that, that to me is uh, um, where it all really started. But it, at the time, it just looked like a fantastic race. Then we went to Spain. This became pretty clear that the Malaysian Grand Prix of 2015 wasn't just going to be any old race as early as Thursday in the usually utterly mundane setting of the pre-event press conference. It was there that Valentino Rossi said this. During the race, uh, it was more difficult to understand, but after when I saw the race uh, later, it was, uh, was very clear that uh, he played he play with us very much. 
<laughs> and uh, because uh, mainly I think that uh, his target uh, is uh, is not just to win the race, but uh, also uh, help Lorenzo to to go far and uh, try to take more points on uh, on me. <laughs> so I think that uh, from uh, Philip Island it's very clear that uh, Jorge have a new supporter, <laughs> that is Mark. And uh, so this change, uh, change a lot because for sure uh, Mark have the potential to, to go away alone and uh, maybe can for sure uh, can be another type of race. And it didn't just end there. Speaking to Italian and Spanish journalists after the press conference, Valentino Rossi went on a bit of a tirade, I guess you could say, uh, saying that this whole uh, this whole rivalry with Marquez had been bubbling and brewing behind in the background since uh, Laguna Seca 2013. Marquez had to make a point to Valentino that he was able to do things even better than he had done in the past. He also questioned whether Marquez had actually been a Valentino Rossi fan in his childhood. Did he really hang my picture in his bedroom when we were young. None of us even know that. So basically, uh, Colin Marquez out, um, basically calling him a, a liar as well. Uh, this was uh, this was pretty astonishing. And um, being in the Sepang paddock that weekend, I mean, everyone was caught on the back foot with that one. What did it all mean? What was he trying to achieve, Steve? Well, it was amazing because we all sat there and thought, our Ross, he's, he's, he's only joking here because, you know, everyone looked at Philip Island and thought how great it was. And it was only afterwards, really, whenever he was talking with the Italian media and he brought out the lap charts that you thought, wait a second, he's actually being serious about this. And obviously enough, over the course of the rest of the weekend, we saw just how serious Rossi was taking it. But when you look back at that weekend... It was only eight words, really, that Rossi said. It was like, in Phillip Island, Mark was playing with me. But those eight words just had this monumental impact on Rossi's bid for an eighth world championship. And it basically showed just that Valentino had been unhinged. He needed an enemy. He needed someone that he could cling on to to hate. He needed someone that could be the bad guy. He needed someone that could be Max Biaggi or Sede Gibernau or Casey Stoner. But instead, all he was met with was just locks of puzzlement from everyone in Sepang. And I remember I, like, I was talking to Neil Hodgson about it afterwards and Hodgie said, um, Hodgie said, yeah, it just looks like an act of desperation from Valentino. You don't go up to the strongest guy in the playground and pick a fight with him. You don't go up to the biggest guy in prison and pick a fight with him. You go up to someone that's smaller than you. You go up to someone that you can beat up to give you that confidence. You don't go up to Mark Marquez and ask him to go into a fight with you on the racetrack because everyone especially now with the benefit of another five years hindsight, everyone knows just how good Marquez is. But already at that stage, everyone knew that Mark was the fastest rider in MotoGP. He was a rider that was doing things that no one else could do. And suddenly, you know, the best title fight that all of us can remember, it had suddenly just been reduced to an afterthought. No one was asking about Lorenzo. They were all asking about Rossi versus Marquez, even though it was still Lorenzo that was the title contender. Yeah, I mean, watching from home, it did feel... I, I didn't go to Sepang. It's one of the races where I really 
wished I had been at, uh, been at because I think it was absolutely worth it. It felt it, it seemed like this lifted sort of the the pressure off of uh, Lorenzo as well. But I mean that that press conference was so it was so odd. What looking at uh, the look on Marcus's face, uh, uh, Neil. What did did you know what was going on? Did could you did you think it was real? Did you think that Valentino was being serious? Uh, yeah, no, I, I I thought he was being serious because I remember just reading his comments uh, from the Sunday evening in Phillip Island and thinking, okay, there's definitely there's something there. He there's, he hasn't explicitly said what was annoying him, but there was definitely an inkling that uh, he wasn't impressed either with the way Marquez raced in Phillip Island or with um or with his comments afterwards um but um so so yeah I definitely thought it was real however I just wasn't really sure what the intention was and with Rossi in the past any fights that he had picked had always been very calculated and he had always come out basically on top made his his rival look quite silly but in this instance I don't think anyone that I spoke to at Sepang that Thursday could really understand what was going on. And the only thing I could think of was that Rossi's comments might inspire Marquez to clear off at the front and win the final two races of the year. Because in that respect, if Lorenzo's only scoring second uh, points for second place and Rossi's third, then basically there's one point difference compared to what it would be if Lorenzo won the race. And uh, with the, the gap being 11 points coming into Sepang, I thought maybe the only thing I can really think of here is that he's trying to get Mark to just clear off and be completely out of any sort of fighting that might be going on between Lorenzo and Rossi. And, uh, well, as we know now, that didn't quite work out. If that was his intention, it spectacularly backfired. Yeah, exactly. Because, uh, I mean, for a start, Marcus was out of everything, really. So normally when Rossi picked fights, he, he picked fights with the guy he had to beat, uh, trying to beat him off field instead of, uh, instead of on, uh, on field. Uh, but this time he was beating, he, he was picking a fight with someone who was frankly rather I- irrelevant to the whole thing. And it, 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 uh, you know, it, it backfired fairly spectacularly. My memory of, um, uh, we really saw that during practice, especially during FP3, where there was a, a standoff between the two, where they were bust, they all, they almost came to a complete start, a standstill on the, uh, on the track, almost on a, a cycling surplus, waiting for them, uh, uh, waiting for each other to go. Rossi didn't want Marquez to, to follow him, and, uh, Marquez was, um, not gonna, got, not gonna lead. It was just, the whole, it was all bizarre. Yeah, and, and when that happened, Dave, in free practice three, we were all sitting there thinking, ooh, that's a bit spicy between them. <laughs> but you were waiting for it to happen as well, because as you said, they were looking over each other's shoulders the whole way through. They weren't concerned about anyone else on track. It was just the two of them. And you could see that it was going to be like a, a proper battle between them. But you just thought like, ah, they're just sizing each other up it's free practice three the thing that i didn't understand is why it was uh again why it was marcus i mean you know why, why rossi let himself uh, uh well for a start why he kicked it off and then why he uh, let himself get drawn into uh focusing on marcus rather than you know the, the guy who was a real threat to his uh, to his championship i think one of the interesting things about sepang that uh, is kind of overlooked is that on at the end of qualifying day 
it looked as though it was Lorenzo that was starting to buckle a bit under pressure rather than Rossi. Um, because Lorenzo, I think, only had three crashes across the entire year in 2015. Uh, one of those was at the end of FP4. Then in qualifying, he just missed out on the qualifying in the front row of the grid. Uh, in the end, Rossi nabbed uh, third place, pushing Lorenzo back to fourth. And there had been a moment between the two of them in one of Saturday's sessions where Lorenzo was stopped on the back straight to do a practice start and Rossi came past him really quick and really close and we had an onboard shot of Lorenzo's bike and we saw I mean Rossi was really trying to to rile him up to, to get inside his head to do anything to try and to ruffle his feathers and then with the crash at the end of ep 4 there were signs that yeah Lorenzo had been ruffled and I remember going for a walk around the track in Sunday warm-up with you Steve and we were saying we can probably see the championship being decided here. We thought Lorenzo was maybe going to come unstuck. Well, that was it, Neil, because this was Rossi's first opportunity to be able to clinch the championship. And uh, we thought that, you know what, it looks like he's, his his games are, are starting to work on Lorenzo. And you know we were thinking that, all right, well, Danny Kent can wrap up the Moto3 championship. Rossi can wrap up the MotoGP championship. And uh, we can at least have a nice, easy weekend in Valencia. And, and obviously, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> And Rossi gets up the inside, and Rossi is back into third place. What can Marquez do side by side? They come! Cool, Marquez thought about riding around the outside of Rossi at turn 12. Brave in the extreme, that would have been... He rides around the outside of turn 13 instead. He absolutely mugs Rossi on the outside. Rossi looks really close. Oh, oh that's Rossi! Marquez Rossi was... Well... You've got to say, Valentino Rossi looks over his left shoulder. He slowed right down in turn number 14. There was contact between Marquez, a shake of the head from Mark Marquez, and you feel with some justification. Oh, wow. It's going to be repercussions from that incident, I can promise you. Yeah, so just the tiniest little smidgen of drama there happening that Sunday, that pivotal Sunday at Sepang. Uh, Steve, what was your impression of it at the time? And has that changed since? Uh, well, at the time I was sitting beside you and the two of us needed defibrillators, I think really, because one thing after the other, lap after lap, nearly corner after corner, we were just thinking, oh my God, something amazing is going to happen. You could see that, you could see exactly what was what was playing out. And it was really interesting to me, even as we were sitting there looking at this unfold, the two of us turned to each other and said, what the hell is Rossi doing? He's got a world championship to win, but he's not interested in closing down the gap to Pedroza and Lorenzo. He's only interested in Marc Marquez. And it was more important to him to put Marquez in his place than it was to win the world championship. And it was, it was so shocking that he was willing to do that on the basis of what we had seen the whole way through the season, where for Rossi, it was all about podiums. It was all about consistency. It was all about the championship. This was his quest to win a 10th world championship, an eighth premier class championship. This was his last chance is what we all thought going into the season. And suddenly he's willing to throw it away because Mark Marquez has got the better of him. But was he was he willing to throw it away or was it Marquez that was uh, deliberately doing anything he could to upset Rossi's rhythm? Well, it was both. But it's also where Rossi needs to find a way. He's the championship contender. And uh, Marquez, 
gets in front of Rossi and instead of like it would be in a normal race situation let's see who's got the faster pace let's see who's able to drag us up towards the two race leaders it just devolved into let's just batter each other let's beat each other up at every single corner let's dive bomb into into corners to get in front of one another there was no respect shown from either of them and there was no one that was in the right in Sepang but there was someone that had an awful lot more to lose in Sepang and Rossi lost sight of the bigger goal. And and again, it goes back to what happened on Thursday because if he doesn't kick off on the Thursday press conference, does this transpire like it did? Probably not. You don't go in and and pick a fight with Mark Marquez, particularly at Sepang, a track that Mark knows better than anywhere else on a MotoGP bike, a place where he's always strong in in uh, on the Honda and he had been super fast during the preseason tests there so you knew that he was going to be good at uh, Sepang again if you think back to the February tests the reason that Honda went down the wrong route with their engine was because it worked so well at Sepang that it fooled them into thinking it was going to be the right choice so you knew that the Honda was going to be quick there and Rossi was still willing to pick a fight with him and then obviously what happened with the crash at the end of it was just the culmination of all that David, how about you? I mean, um, watching the events of that day or, or revisiting the events of that day now in 2020, uh, does your, has your viewpoint changed? Has it, has it evolved? Um, do you think one rider uh, should be apportioned more blame than the other compared to what you thought at the time? No. Well, one of the luxuries of sitting at home and watching from home was I was able to, uh, on the MotoGP.com website, look at it from every conceivable angle, including the uh, the, the helicopter shot. And it was quite clear that um, Rossi basically got just got dragged into a fight which he didn't need, as Steve was saying. There was absolutely no need for him to get dragged into that fight, uh, but he did. And then when the two came together... Uh, Rossi stopped looking at the track and started looking at Marquez uh, and uh, eventually put him in, uh, put him in a place where uh, you know he could do he couldn't do anything except crash really um obviously there's lots of there was a million conspiracy uh, uh, theories from fans from both sides no there wasn't a kick and yes Valentino Rossi did uh, uh, did cause Mark Marquez to crash um but yeah it was it was it, it it was just it was just so bizarre and since then really nothing has made me uh change, change my opinion that rossi was focused on the wrong person um he stopped as you said neil he stopped thinking about the championship yeah, and if you think back to the time as well, Michael Scott was was talking about it and Scotty said this was a red bull rookie rider's mistake Matt Oxy was talking about it and he was writing about only Valentino knows why he did what he did. When you look at the reaction from riders, it was really split. It was split into, uh, if you're not a title contender, you shouldn't get in and, and mix it with a title with a title contender. But, you know, at what point should you stop racing? At what point should you say, oh, well, you know, you're battling for a world championship and, uh, you know, that's more important than me being able to you know, do my job. And it was really interesting to see just where the the line was between a lot of different 
riders across different championships. You had people like Ben Spees was talking about the fact that uh, there's no question that Marquez asked for it. You had Casey Stoner obviously was going to come in hard against Valentino Rossi. You had Michael Laverty tweeted about it saying that you need to respect the riders that are challenged for challenging for a championship. Foggy was talking about it and he was saying that it's if there's any other rider that had done this, they would have been disqualified from the race. You know, you had this huge swathe of opinion across people that are on the bike, people that know exactly what's going on in a situation like this. And probably the best one that I got was from one rider that told me, you know what? It was just stupid. There's so many different ways that you can fuck up someone's race without making it look so obvious. And that for me was was the big thing. It was so obvious what was happening during the course of that race. And that's what made it, that's what made it where Rossi had to be penalized for it. Yeah, I, I I always wonder what would have happened because yeah, at the time I thought he should have been black flagged. You know, he should have been either black flagged or given a ride through, and then there would have been it wouldn't have dragged on so long. It would have been a much a much simpler solution. Well, that was it, David. Because at the time, Neil, we went down to all the different. Uh, debriefs and media scrums afterwards and the most interesting ones were from the team managers because and this was very unusual this is the only time where it happened where all the team managers were brought out for a media debrief on the Sunday so you had Nakamoto-san from HRC you had Lynn Jarvis you had Paolo Chiabari all these people from all the manufacturers being put out to give their thoughts on what had happened and the one thing that kept coming back and it's worth noting it was from everyone except for Lynn Jarvis but the one thing that kept coming back was why wasn't an in-race penalty given? When Simoncelli did this, he was given an in-race penalty. If you give a penalty during the race, Rossi gets punished there and then. If you leave a penalty until after the race, suddenly it can have an impact on the next race. He should have been punished there and then was the general consensus within the paddock after this because all that was going to happen by delaying the punishment was you were leaving yourself open to Valencia then suddenly being impacted by this. Yeah, race director Mike Webb explaining at the time that uh, it was felt because of the magnitude of the situation with the championship on the line, it was felt that it was best to uh, decide on an adequate punishment after the race rather than doing it in race because that way, whether they come to the conclusion that Rossi was in fact innocent, uh, he would still have the 16 points to his name or no penalty uh, for the upcoming race. But as it turned out, uh, that was uh, it transpired a little differently. Yeah, and uh, Neil, obviously as well, that was when Mike Webb had to give a press conference as well to explain it. So we had this really unique situation of everything about your Sunday as a journalist at a MotoGP race is very regimental. It's warm-up, race, debrief, right. There's nothing really else to it. You've just got to get your work done. But suddenly for Sepang, it was the debriefs were going on and on and on. You couldn't really start your work because you needed to talk to as many people as possible. And I think I talked to about 30 people. I was talking to ex-riders. I was talking to team managers. I was talking to current riders. You know, you're on the phone to people in different championships. You're doing you know, lots of different things. And it did come down to mostly to what Mike Webb said. And Dave, whenever you were watching the press conference, you would have heard Webb say, there's some merit to Valentino's claim that he was held up by Mark Marquez. Mike Webb was apportioning some of the blame 
Tamara Kay's, but putting most of it on Valentino's face. Well, yeah, I mean, it, exactly. It was it was quite clear that Marquez was um, uh, not engaged in, um, uh, uh, you know, he he, wore, he wasn't racing to try and uh, to, to try and beat uh, beat Valentino Rossi. He was racing to try and make Valentino Rossi just, uh, it, or to trying to make it as hard as possible for Valentino Rossi to get past him, um, which he has every right to do. You know, they, it's it's a single race; it's not a championship, and yes. Not interfering in the championship might not be uh, fair or polite, but most riders, once they put their helmets on, the politeness tends to go out the window a little bit. And I think uh, a lot of riders would have been in. Uh, I think a lot of riders would have would have reacted the same way if they'd have been on either side of that argument, sort of thing. Yeah, that politeness definitely went out the window, Neil, because when we did eventually get to talk to Valentino after the race, he said that he wasn't trying to take Marquez out. He was just trying to tell him to fuck off. So the politeness clearly had just gone out the window at that stage. But it was interesting, Neil, because we went to the press conference and there was Danny Pedrosa, there was Jorge Lorenzo, and there was an empty seat. Yeah, exactly. And at that time, we weren't really sure what uh, what Rossi was doing. But uh, as it transpired, he was uh, locked in a meeting with Race Direction, who were uh, reviewing the incident. Um, so in that case, basically, Danny Petrosa barely mentioned him at all. He, of course, won the race in some style, lights the flag victory for him. And uh, Lorenzo, second, then made, uh, made a point of getting involved. And that didn't go down well with a lot of fans either. Lorenzo basically saying that, uh, you know, what Rossi did was a disgrace, that he should have been disqualified on the spot, uh, that uh, it was only because of his reputation that he was still uh, coming away from Sepang with 16 points. Um, all of this stuff was going on. Um, it really was just quite mental, uh, the fallout of this, uh, of this incident. Uh, Neil, uh, uh, me and Steve have given our opinion. Is there anything that's happened in the meantime for you to change your mind? Or do you still? I mean, what what's your view? Who who is to blame here? Yeah, I think I think it was both guys to blame. I mean, um, I don't think. Uh, I mean, what Marquez was doing, I think, went beyond just trying to just trying to to get past Rossi. I don't think Marquez had any t- intention of chasing after Lorenzo for that second place. Um, from his actions, he was just putting the bike anywhere to get in Rossi's way. And the, the question then turns to, is he justified in doing something like that after being goaded as he was on the Thursday? It's probably not right, but you're talking about Mark Marquez, a guy who at the time had known nothing but, but winning. Um, yeah, obviously there was going to be some kind of reaction there. And then, you know, what Rossi did, I can, I can see... I can understand the frustration that he was going through, but he shouldn't have done what he did on Thursday and he shouldn't have done what he did toward the end of the race that led to, to Marquez um, coming undone. I mean, that just wasn't that just wasn't cool. And I know like lots of uh, reasons were given what happened, but at the end of the day, Rossi basically stopped in the middle of that corner, sat his bike up and pushed Marquez out to the edge of the track. Um, I mean, he lost his head. Uh do you think the outcome, I mean, both of you, do you think the outcome would have been different if the roles had been reversed? I mean, if it had been Mark Marquez sort of uh, uh, trying to win a championship and uh, Valentino, and who felt that Valentino Rossi had interfered with his championship um, and Valentino Rossi had been trying to mess uh, uh, mess with Mark Marquez's race. Do you think the outcome would have been the same? Do you think, uh, do you think either of them would have changed, uh, would have behaved differently in those in those positions? Well, I think for me, Mark wouldn't have put himself into a position like that in the press conference. He's always done most of his 
barbs on the track. It's always been, look at what I can do that you can't do. <laughs> right from his first test at Valencia in 2012, I remember, David, we were talking to Cal Crutchlow on the Sunday night and uh, we were asking him about Marquez because he had come through the field in the Moto2 race because he had come through the field having been put to the back of the grid in the Moto2 race. And Cal turned to, to us and said, Mark's the best rider in the world. He's going to jump onto a MotoGP bike and he's going to be the best MotoGP rider in the world. Cal had that much confidence that even as a rookie, that Marquez just had a different talent level compared to everyone else or a different, just something compared to everyone else. He jumped onto that bike and immediately changed how you had to ride a MotoGP bike. He always has had that little bit of an edge over everyone else. Obviously, as you get older and as younger riders come through, they pick up all the things that you've done and they take it on to the next degree. Casey Stoner did it against Rossi. Marquez did it then, learning from Casey, learning from Rossi, and he brought it forward. Someone's going to do the same to Marquez. So Mark, up until now at least, has never had to try and really play those kind of mind games. And what was really strange about it was Rossi's always been so good at them. But now suddenly you're up against someone that's faster than you, someone that's fearless, someone that is just always willing to push themselves through the pain barrier. And that's the thing that's always separated Marquez. When you look at him, even now, how many times does he go to the hospital in Andorra where he's got cuts and bruises all over him? He's got, you know, lots of different holes in his leg in uh, motocross crashes in Severa, different things like that, you know, and he's just always been able to deal with that. He's never been afraid to make sure that everything gets done on the racetrack. And that's why he wouldn't have put himself into a position on the Thursday to do what Rossi did. Rossi at this stage had been, like I said earlier, pretty much a podium man all the way through the season, but never the fastest man. He'd always just been able to grind out consistent results. And on any given day where the bike was really good, he could get a win. You know, and he did that a few times through the season. But he was never really on the same level as Lorenzo from, you know, the midpoint of the season onwards. Once Lorenzo won those races at the start of the year, he was faster than him. And that was grading on Rossi as well. There was lots of different things that went into it. And you have to remember as well, it had been a long time since Rossi was in a title fight. He didn't expect to ever get into another one. After he went to Ducati, after he came back to Yamaha, he just was happy to be able to win a few races. To suddenly be able to have that pressure of trying to win a world championship back on him clearly took its toll. And that, I think, for me, was one of the big things because that pressure when it's constant, and it was constant for Rossi from his 125, his 250 days, the Honda and Yamaha years in MotoGP, he was always under pressure to be the best rider in the world. When he went to Ducati, that pressure was gone. And you'd turn up to debriefs, and for the first time in his life, no one cared. No one wanted to know what Rossi had to say. You'd go to a debrief and over the course of the weekend, everyone would go to one Rossi debrief because you didn't need to. You didn't need to know what Rossi had to say because it was the end of his career. He was never going to be Valentino Rossi again. That's how low he had sunk. And then suddenly, 2015, he's back on form. He's back winning races. He's back being able to win a world championship and he can see it slipping away from him. And suddenly... That's what you see happen in Sepang. And Neil, when we were sitting in the press room, what was the most interesting thing for you? Because for me, it was the reaction of the Spanish media, but much more importantly, the reaction of the Italian media and particularly the GP1 guys, Paolo and uh, Matteo. Their reaction was, 
what the hell is Valentino doing? They were adamant that this was not how you're supposed to race. This was on sportsmanship. This was something that you shouldn't see on a racetrack. And for me, it was one of those moments where you look at it and you say, all right, those guys, they don't care that Valentino's Italian. They care that he's a good racer. He's a great racer. And they want to see him win the right way. And it was really interesting for me to see the reaction of different people within the paddock to what happened. Yeah, the reaction of uh, Matteo and uh, Paolo from GP1 obviously differing from uh, pretty much the entire uh, Italian press pack. Um, and it re- really became a, a sort of a, a line that was um, fought along uh, nationalist sort of boundaries in the, the kind of weeks to come. I must say it became quite tiresome after about four or five weeks of just nothing but uh, talk about the incident at Sepang and then Valencia. But anyway, Rossi did keep his points, did keep his third place. He then had a seven-point advantage as we went to Valencia, but so much of the drama was going on behind the scenes in the week leading up to that. David? Sepang didn't finish on the Sunday night. Normally, um, uh, uh, normally a race will finish on the Sunday night and uh, sort of the history of the race will finish on sort of Sunday night, Monday morning by the time we finish writing about it. Um, but that was absolutely not the case in uh, uh, with this. Um, Mike Webb uh, or uh, Race Direction issued Valentino Rossi uh, three points um, for irresponsible riding. Where At the time, we still had the point system where you accrued a, a specific number of points over the season. Um, and once you reached 10 points, then, um, uh, well, once you reached um, uh, four points, then you got put to the back of the grid, seven points and you started from pit lane, and then uh, 10 points, you'd be disqualified for a race. Um, uh, this puts, uh, together with that single point, which you'd got for blocking, um, uh, uh, for getting in the way of, uh, of uh, Jorge Lorenzo at Misano, uh, the three points put him over the four limit, and so it meant he had to start from the back of the grid. Um, Rossi appealed that uh, penalty to the FIM stewards and the stewards uh, rejected the appeal. And so he sent uh, an appeal to the CAS, but the appeal to the CAS, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, the highest um, sporting court, um, that court, um, uh, he didn't appeal the penalty. What he did was he asked for a stay of execution on the penalty. So basically he wanted the penalty to be postponed until after uh, until after the Valencia race. It's, uh, and uh, the the cast rejected that appeal, so that meant he had to start from the back of the grid. Um, but one of the, I mean, we saw that this race had so many, had so much fallout, and one of the fallouts was later on the penalty points would be scrapped. But we also saw the former the formation of the uh, of the FIM stewards panel, which took over the responsibility of race direction. Um, because of this, uh, this was when for a, a, a little later, Freddie Spencer was uh, was appointed as uh, head of the. Uh, or, well, first of all, we had the, the, the FIM steward panel with race direction taking part of it, but it was to take uh, some of the responsibility away from race direction and move it towards the FIM stewards. Uh, basically, because the FIM, well, the, the race direction didn't want to have to be able to deal with all this nonsense um, uh, instead of getting on with the race and the. By the all of this was going on, and by the time we actually got to Valencia, it was the, the atmosphere was pretty much poisoned, I should think. So it didn't just end there, Dave, because uh, we got to Valencia, and obviously the, the pre-event press conference had been cancelled. Riders were only allowed to uh, to speak in their own hospitality units, and there was an attempt to keep all of the uh, the, uh, the protagonists in this saga away from each other. Um, 
what, what, what was the what was the thinking behind that, Steve? And uh, what was the effect? Because it, it was a very strange weekend on the whole. Well, it was a really strange weekend and a really strange run-up to it. Dave's mentioned with the Court of Arbitration for Sport, Rossi was basically looking to cite previous examples of, I think it's the era, and uh, Rossi was looking to cite previous examples where a penalty such as this had uh, proved too harmful for a competitor when there was still an appeal to be heard. That's why he wants to have it suspended. But the big problem was in Japan, Yamaha and Honda both understood, you know what, this isn't helping any of us. This isn't making any of us any money. This isn't going to help anyone buy a Fireblade or anyone buy an R1. This is only going to cause more division. So halfway through the week, and this was after Honda had come out and said, you know what, we're going to show the telemetry. We're going to show all the traces. We're going to prove why Mark crashed. And then Honda had to backtrack on that because it was doing just, it was too bad of a luck for any major company to come in like that and uh, try and fight basically with a marketing campaign on the racetrack. So we went to Valencia and like you said, Neil, there was no press conference. Everyone had to do everything from their hospitality. And even that was a bit of a makeshift solution after there was complaints made because all of us wanted to talk to Valentino, to Mark, to Jorge, to Pedroza, to everyone about what had happened. And I remember in the run-up to this, MotoGP was suddenly big business. You know, it was suddenly like Formula One. It was suddenly where everyone down the street wanted to talk about what was going to happen in Valencia. And I remember going to get my hair cut and my barber was asking me about it. And you're there thinking, you know what? You've never once shown any level of interest in motorbike racing until now. But he had because of Sepang. And I remember walking into the media center on the Thursday morning and it was already packed. There was no seats. This was the first time I ever saw it where they had to have the overflow seats. So if you'd left certain desks, you had to take your bags, you had to take your laptop, you had to put it away into a locker and then you might get a seat when you come back. And it was one of those situations where everything was heaving. And this was one of the first times I had ever seen it like that. And David, it kept like that year on year after that at Valencia. Suddenly, there was a big boom in the amount of media that were traveling to MotoGP races and the amount of interest that was coming from them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was all over. Um, uh, it was all over the non-motorcycling media. I mean, it, to, as far as that's concerned, 2015 was a good year uh, overall for, uh, for for the growth of MotoGP. I mean, in part because we had some, again, Philip Island was fantastic. Uh, uh, Andrea Iannone headbutting a seagull was also good for, uh, for for front pages everywhere. You know, it was a great photograph. It was a bizarre um, a bizarre image, and unfortunately. When you report on a on a niche sport, then it's the uh, it's the bizarre and the conflicts which get picked up. And this was, I mean, you just could not get a bigger conflict uh, in terms of uh, sort of press things. the The title fight was coming down to the final race uh, of the season, and uh, there was an enormous amount of bitterness uh, coming out. And we were, I mean, you know, we were expecting it to come to blows almost. What was most interesting for me, though, was after Sepang, you, you expect that everything's going to be dominated by let's look back. But in actual fact, most of it was let's look forward to the weekend as well, because we'd all written and talked about and, you know, all the TV companies had done all their big features based around what had happened in Sepang. And I remember going to one of the debriefs and the 
the team's press officer, I won't mention who it was, they asked me to ask a question not about Sepang. They'd start off with a question about the weekend, you know, a question about Valencia and just Valencia. Uh, and this was one of the, the main protagonists within the championships in terms of, you know, a front runner through the season and different things like that. But they didn't want the first question, because this was obviously televised as well. They didn't want the first question to be about Sepang. And no questions were asked about Sepang. Everyone was only interested in what's going to happen on Sunday. Valentino was at the back of the grid. What does that mean for Sunday? Not what does that mean in terms of is it fair that he's at the back of the grid? And it was interesting to see how quickly the the permanent media had moved on to we're back into a new race weekend. Sepang's done. We've all written enough about it. Let's move on and just talk about what had up until Sepang been the best title fight that most people could rem- remember. So on to the race then. Valentino Rossi, Steve, as you said, uh, was deemed uh, to start from the back of the grid. Lorenzo had secured a fantastic pole position on the Saturday, one of uh, one of the laps of his life, almost half a second quicker than Marquez in second. Pedroza would line up in third. And, uh, well, basically, the race became a two-way fight at the front. Lorenzo heading Marquez, who was stalking his every move. Rossi eventually got himself up into fourth position. And then Pedrosa started arriving from third. And that meant that we basically had a three-way fight for the final lap. But here is how it ended up. Half a lap to go. One hand on that World Championship trophy. Now he dips it into turn 12. Two ends to go. Jorge Lorenzo standing on the brink of his third World Championship. Danny Pedrosa's out of this. Lorenzo is going to come through the final corner. It's Lorenzo's now to lose. Jorge Lorenzo will be crowned the 2015 MotoGP World Champion. 99 wins here in Valencia. 2015 belongs to Jorge Lorenzo. And that was it. Jorge Lorenzo had held his nerve until the very end under the most, well, some of the the strongest pressure, the most intense pressure imaginable to any sportsman. Uh, Basically, didn't put a foot wrong in that entire race. Came home, he was the 2015 world champion. Now, obviously, as we all know, a lot of the discussion after this was not about Lorenzo's brilliant ride, but it was about whether Marquez had indeed uh, decided against fighting him until the final corner and maybe even passing him. What was your take on the incident and the race, David? I mean, uh, before recording this, because... Again, I watched this uh, at the time uh, a number of times. The, the uh, uh, I watched the race and especially uh, some of the overhead shots. Um, and at the time, the strength of the uh, of the Yamaha was drive out of corners. It had really strong drive out of corners, but it was it it, it ran out of um, uh, top speed, sort of about three quarters of the way down the straight. Um, the strength of the Honda was it, it had plenty of speed. Um, and outstanding braking, but what it didn't have was uh, much drive grip. So, you know, it, it, they, they could never really get out of the corner. Uh, 
And if you actually watch the overhead footage, you see this really, really well. You also see the same with with uh, with Pedrosa. Um, that final corner, turn thirteen. Well, the turn thirteen, fourteen. Thirteen is the long left, the lovely long left, and you see Marquez really closing in on uh, Lorenzo, but he never really got close enough to actually stick a proper dive up the inside. He'd break all the way up and get sort of right to right to Lorenzo's back wheel. But as soon as they opened the throttle again, the the, the the Yamaha would just disappear. And you saw that all the way around the track, wherever there were acceleration points, um, that the, the, the Yamaha was getting really, really uh, good drive out of there. And it, in many ways, it was uh, sort of almost like a, a, a summary of the, uh, 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 of the whole season because... Um, Rossi rode a fantastic race to finish fourth. Um, uh, absolutely one of his best races, fighting his way through the field. He was halfway through the field by about turn five. Um, and he was just fighting his way forward, picking, uh, picking people off. Uh, but he never really had the pace for, uh, the, for, for the people at the front. Um, the Hondas were uh, s- strong, but just, couldn't get the, the they they couldn't get the acceleration they couldn't get the low speed acceleration which they needed to actually make a uh, to, to make a lunge at um uh, uh, at, at Lorenzo and um, Lorenzo just rode a fantastic race at, at one of his favourite tracks uh, and I think because a lot of people say you know the, the, especially the, the Italian we learned all new we all learnt a new Italian word a biscotti which is uh, which means a biscuit which means basically you know a, a stitch up where um, um, Marquez was supposed to be in on it and let Lorenzo win but if Marquez had, had finished ahead of um, Lorenzo uh, Lorenzo and Rossi would have still have been tied on points and Lorenzo would have been handed the championship anyway because uh, he had more wins than uh, uh, than Rossi at the time. So it it didn't seem, I, I don't think it made that much difference. And it, and it looked like Marquez was doing everything he could to win, but he could never get close enough to actually stick a pass on Lorenzo and stay in front of him. Lorenzo just had too much speed. He was riding too well. And... The same with Rossi. Rossi was running an absolutely fantastic race, um, but I don't think he would have finished ahead of uh, either Marquez or Pedrosa, uh, even if he had started from you know first or second row on the grid. Do you buy that, Steve? Was Marquez doing all he could to win the race? Well, I think when you look back on the season, Lorenzo led an unbelievable amount of laps that season, and mo- all of his wins were first corner to the flag. If he was out in front and he was able to win the race, he wasn't going to be beaten. And even if you look back in some of the races where he, where he did end up losing whenever he was out in front, Qatar, he had his problems with his helmet lining coming loose. Then you look further down the season, Mizano, of course, he crashed out in the changing conditions, having led the early laps. Motegi, he was super fast at the start of the race in consistent conditions, lost the race. And then obviously, Phillip Island as well. He was beaten by Marquez, having led laps there. But the one thing, obviously, in Phillip Island, he's thinking about the championship at that stage. By the time we went to Valencia, Lorenzo knew that the safest way to win the championship was to do what he had always done, which was just lead at the front and win races. He led more than half the laps that season. I think Rossi led something like 200 laps less than uh, Lorenzo. So for Jorge, he really was doing exactly what he had to do and what he had done all season. 
Yeah, I, I was just looking it up, and uh, Jorge Lorenzo led 274 laps in 2015. Valentino Rossi led 50 laps in 2015. Uh, Mark Marcus led 86. So, I mean, it, it's really was this really was a uh, the, the year in which uh, Lorenzo dominated he, do, he dominated in many many ways um uh, and i think i think in the end it was a fair it, it, despite all the controversy and all the madness it ended up being a, a reasonable uh, reasonably fair reflection of the of the season as a whole yeah and i think that's one of the key things you can always do at the end of any season let's look back to see what position were people in most lorenzo was mostly in front Marquez was mostly in second position and Rossi's mostly second and third positions through the course of races. So it really was a case of when things were going all right for Mark, when he wasn't crashing, he was going to be at the front. When Rossi was up against Marquez and Lorenzo, it was always going to be tough for him to be able to get in front of them. And Valencia was another case likely where that would have happened because this was also the one track where Rossi just struggles. He's never gone well at Valencia. Jorge's always gone well there. So if you were to come up with a perfect storm for not being able to win the championship, it would have been starting from the back of the grid at Valencia for Rossi. Yeah, I think Valencia is... Uh, I think Rossi has won at Valencia, but you have to go back to something like 2002 or 2003 to find him uh, uh, having won there. It's never been... It's just... It's never been a really particularly strong track. And for Lorenzo, Lorenzo has just always been outstanding there. So the fallout from this Grand Prix was obviously uh, pretty spectacular, almost uh, to a similar extent as uh, Sepang Valentino Rossi's hopes of uh, winning a 10th World Championship were dashed. He retreated into his shell of, uh, of deep, deep sadness, anger, bitterness. And uh, obviously, it didn't just end there. The repercussions of the end of 2015 were, were really felt long into 2016, even longer. What were, what were some of the biggest things that came out of this uh, in terms of uh, future decisions, movements of, uh, of the riders involved, David? Um, well, I think the biggest thing was the, the because of the, the very controversial end of this season, you saw that uh, Yamaha decided to uh, cancel the championship celebration. Normally, when someone wins a championship, then um, uh, the, their manufacturer organizes a, a, a celebration. That didn't happen. And that uh, really made uh, Lorenzo feel he wasn't uh, he wasn't appreciated that uh, uh, by Yamaha and that Yamaha had taken Valentino's side, and we saw very early on that there were rumours that um, uh, Rossi was uh, uh, or that, that Lorenzo was leaving. He started talking with Ducati quite early. Uh, he ended up signing quite early. There were rumours even at uh, Qatar in 2016 um, uh, that he was talking to Ducati, and it got done. Um, it was you know it was announced that uh, Lorenzo. I would be going to Ducati for 2017 uh, uh, in the week before Jerez, which was you know the fourth race of uh, uh, of 2016. So it, it, I think it really broke it. And I think also I remember the the press conference after the race, um, uh, uh, Valentino Rossi's debrief after the race. Um, normally in the debrief, what they do is they try to quieten the crowd down. They try to uh, uh, kick out as many people as possible. Um, so there's only the journalists and one or two, uh, literally only a handful of guests. Uh, but the Yamaha uh, hospitality was absolutely packed with what looked like the entire Valentino Rossi fan club. Um, and it didn't feel like a, de it didn't feel like a press debrief. It felt like um, a leader addressing the nation. 
Steve, anything to add? You don't want to say highlights, but one of the most memorable things from Valencia, because like you said, David, it really was a case of you walked in and you knew exactly where you were. And you knew that everyone was there just to put pressure on people to ask the questions that Valentino wanted to answer. And it was really interesting to see how it was controlled. But it was also interesting to see just how much control Valentino had over every situation. It was, this is how I'm setting it up. I might have lost the championship. Lorenzo might have won the championship. But again, you're going to know that this is my team. I'm the one that's backed by more people. I'm the one that's got all the supporters. I'm the one that's able to control everything around here. And like you said, David, that ended up playing a big role in Lorenzo and his eventual move to Ducati. Yes, I would just like to say one more thing, and that's that I think it's a shame. Uh, uh, like my abiding memory of 2015 is um, that it was a fantastic season and it was just ruined by those last two races. You know, we had 16 races of dra- high drama and fantastic racing and the weirdest and most unexpected things happening. But everyone remembers it for Sepang instead of for Philip Island and Misano and, and all the rest of it. Yeah, and I, I think I'd be the same as well, David, because if you look at this podcast, right, there's going to be effectively three hours talking about the 2015 season. And it's not three hours talking about Sepang. It's three hours talking about everything that led up to that. And that's the sad thing that this season will only ever be remembered for something that was a massive moment. And one of the biggest things that's ever happened in MotoGP history, but it was inconsequential at the time in terms of winning the championship. Mark wasn't a title contender, but we ended up having him as as the central player in something that should have been just the two Yamaha riders. And we would have had a great end to the season. You would have ended up with a battle that would still be talked about incredibly positively, as opposed to, if you mentioned 2015, it's only Sepang that comes to people's minds. Yeah, and from my point of view, I think um, the whole Sepang-Valencia fallout really undermines just what a fantastic job Jorge Lorenzo did in 2015. I mean, this was Lorenzo taking on the best rider of all time at the time, we all thought, uh, on the same bike. And beating him, okay, he only won the championship by five points, but I think we can agree that in the second half of the year, Lorenzo was comprehensively faster than Rossi. And a lot of different circumstances worked in Rossi's favor to help him out. Um, But yeah, people don't really think of 2015 as an astonishing achievement by one of the greats of the support. And I think Lorenzo, one of the the things that eventually led to um, him leaving... Um, G- Yamaha for Ducati as you previously mentioned there Dave was the fact that you know this outrageous stellar achievement when he was riding new heights had largely gone underappreciated so yes 2015 yeah what a, what a year in terms of drama surprise and uh, just overall excitement um, yeah for me can't be topped uh, I would like to uh, thank both of my guests uh, for their time their patience and uh, they're very valuable insights. Um, memories from 2015, David Emmett. Thank you very much over in the Netherlands. Thank you, Neil. And thank you very much to you, Steve, as well, over there in Dundalk. Yep, thanks very much, Neil. A lot of fun to look back on, like we said, one of the most memorable seasons that any of us can remember. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, keep listening to the Paddock Pass podcast. We might not have any racing out on track at the moment. But uh, this uh, series of uh, trips down memory lane will uh, will certainly continue. We'll be picking another epic season or epic race from World Superbike and 
MotoGP in the coming weeks and uh, going through and uh, dissecting that. So, uh, well, thanks very much for your time, listener. As always, big pleasure to have you on board. And, uh, well, we'll hopefully see you again soon. Lads, I feel it would be remiss of me to have a 2015 show and not recount the story of Sepang Steve. <laughs> that was your proper rental car story. Yeah, that was the proper rental car story. Malaysian Steve came to the fore that weekend and it, it was great because I picked the car up, Dave, and uh, I was I went to sign the forms and they said like, oh yeah, if you sign, like your waiver for any damage to this car is $100. Is that okay? And I was kind of there like, what? You know, if I if I wreck the car, it's a hundred dollars. Or if I put a scratch on the car, it's a hundred dollars. And they were there like, yeah, yeah, if it's a hundred dollars, no matter how much damage is done to it. So obviously enough, you then had no choice but to absolutely rally the living <laughs> shit out of the car for the whole weekend.